Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Authentic Messengers. My name is Catherine Van Wetter and I will be your host today. Every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, I have been interviewing different authors from our book series, Life Sparks. All of these interviews will be archived, so if you miss one, you can go to www.blogtalk forward slash authenticmessengers.com. Please also go on to our Facebook page, Authentic Messengers, and give us a thumbs up or comments on how you liked our shows and any suggestions that you have for any future shows. Today I'm excited to be interviewing William McConaughey, who is a political psychologist explaining and doing research in the areas of human attitudes about political issues which has led to a model for designing a political party that will appeal to the majority of both strong liberals and strong conservatives, but not to radicals of either the right or the left. This is really an interesting topic, and I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. I'm happy to be here, Catherine. So... Um, being a licensed psychologist in political science, um, what have you found with your research that you've done, perhaps in lieu of the recent political elections and or the political atmosphere for the last several years? Well, um, are you referring to the, the political atmosphere in the United States for the past several years? Yeah, how about if we start home and then if if you find it um, important to to go out into the whole global region? Well, I've learned some uh, very interesting uh, general things about human political attitudes and their implications. Um, And my studies are based in part on my attitude questionnaire studies and in part on a review of the literature uh, done by other psychologists and by geneticists um, and and other researchers. And one of the most interesting things that I uh, learned from geneticists is that political attitudes, specifically the liberal and conservative worldviews, which seem to um, summarize political attitudes, those attitudes are genetically grounded in humans. Mm-hmm. And what does that so, mean when you say they're genetically grounded in humans? Well, it means that there are genes that program us to resonate with uh, one or another um, world of political attitudes so that, uh, as, especially once we get old enough to leave our parents' supervision, those genes click in and steer us toward uh, either liberal or conservative uh, thinking and uh, and uh, beliefs. Um, but only one out of six people or humans tend to be strong liberals. One out of six tend to be strong conservatives, and the rest uh, fall in between those two extremes. So does that mean that they waffle back and forth with either being liberal and being conservative and have a difficult time making up the decision of which one they are? 
Well, one way to look at it is to think of the people in the middle as available for recruiting by either the strong liberals on the uh, the strong liberals or the strong conservatives, depending on circumstances. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing that I learned from biologists uh, is that political attitudes seem to have evolved in the human species uh, because they serve two important functions that help local communities. Uh, And the original research was by uh, a biologist at the University of New Mexico, Randy Thornhill, and he studied communities around the world with his colleagues, and they found that the closer a community is to the equator, the more authoritarian governments there are, the more wars there are, the more religions there are, the more languages there are, and the more disease pathogens there are. And they hypothesized from this frequency data that those traits typically thought of in our current culture as conservative authoritarian leadership, for example, and warmongering endorsement, those traits protected local communities from disease pathogens in neighboring communities against which the local community did not yet have immunity. And the way they protected the local community was to rattle their sabers at their borders between their communities and the the neighboring communities to, to slow down the interaction or the incursion of foreigners into the local community. A dramatic example of this was the effect that Europeans had on the Americas when they migrated to the Americas, and they killed off many of the Native American groups by diseases rather than by Mm -hmm. war per se. And I've done questionnaire research that supports that theory in that Uh, disease phobia is a trait that correlates positively with uh, political conservatism. Political conservatives tend to be fearful of diseases in other communities, and liberals are not. Wow, it's fascinating because there's so much polarization happening within our within our country now and with so much emphasis on immigration and fear of having folks coming across the border right to the point of building a wall. It's fascinating what you say, how people are coming into the fear and how the manipulation is happening as a result of that. Yes, conservatives in particular tend to be fearful of foreigners in general as well as from disease pathogens in foreigners. So they, they, they're programmed by nature to... Uh, slow down the incursion of foreigners moving into their territory. What I've always found kind of ironic is I do believe that we're a nation of immigrants <laughs> and to to feel that there's so much phobia around immigrants and here we are immigrants within our own country and wondered how you saw the whole political without, I don't want to create any polarization any more of that but how you saw the whole political atmosphere climate um, shifting with the two with the two candidates 
and what your speculation is on what is unfolding currently within that climate? Well, it's uh, complicated, and there are many different facets of it that I can touch on. Um, One is that research by other researchers has shown that when people feel threatened, they tend to lean to the right in their political Mm -hmm. attitudes. And that helps serve this function of keeping foreigners away if they're threatening you. Um, They don't change permanently, but they can change temporarily to go along with conservative leadership that will argue for war uh, and other procedures to keep foreigners out of their territory or to otherwise reduce whatever threats have been perceived. And in this last election, the media have made quite a bit about uh, uh, the fact that a lot of middle-class jobs have disappeared in the past few decades in the United States because we've begun importing the, the the same goods from countries, especially China, that have uh, citizens willing to work for much lower wages, and they can manufacture and ship the same wrenches and hammers and saws and and clothing goods and so forth to our country cheaper than uh, we were manufacturing them uh, locally uh, two decades ago. But we haven't, as a nation, figured out how to keep all those uh, citizens employed that used to be making uh, wrenches and saws and and hammers. And so those people are feeling threatened, and that's uh, understandable. Mm -hmm. Well, as I was looking at at your profile, you mentioned some of the research you've done on human intelligence. And within that research, it's shown that human intelligence is dropping worldwide secondary to air pollution. And wondered if you'd like to speak in lieu of also what's happening with people being in so much fear. Well, that's a a very big topic, and I love talking about it. So I'll, uh, I'll just wade in here and talk a little bit about that IQ research. Research I sort of came across incidentally. I didn't set out to study international intelligence per se, but uh, about 16 years ago I was asked by a company in San Diego called funeducation.com if I could build some IQ tests that children could take over the Internet because they had a market for such a product. So I built two tests modeled after the Wexler intelligence tests, which are sort of the gold standard IQ tests in the United States, and they're ones that I use when I do my evaluations for the Social Security Administration, and they request those tests specifically. So I use those tests as the model for the ones that I built for the Internet. And these tests have, the verbal test has five different sections. One is for vocabulary, another for arithmetic, comprehension, and so forth. And there are 40 items in each of those categories. And then there was a spatial intelligence test that also had five sections that were similar to those on the Wexler tests. And we uh, administered these tests to several hundred people over the Internet and were able to get 
some normative data so we know knew what an average score and a high score and a low score was on each of the tests and uh, the tests were quite popular and over the years uh, thousands of children from around the world went to the internet and took those tests so in 2008 we had data on 113,000 children from around the world between the ages of 6 and 16 and I was able to compute the the means and standard deviations for um, children at each age level and we use those then uh, as the norm group for newcomers to the website compared them to that group and then in uh, late 2015 I asked the uh, website managers to send me the data for uh, the scores for all of the children since 2008 and I looked at those scores and I was surprised to see that the average score for every age group and for every test was lower, slightly lower than it was for that first group. And this was particularly peculiar because the history of intelligence research over, well, since about 1935 has shown a gradual increase in intelligence scores. And so I was puzzled that there would be a decrease. And my data was on such large samples that I had a lot of confidence in it that it was real. The differences were real. And, and I, I asked the, the fellows at the website at, at funeducation.com if they had any reason to believe that the population of children that were coming to the website were different during the past several years than they were for the initial group. And they couldn't think of any reason why the children would be of a, a different sort, uh, particularly mm -hmm. worldwide. You know, there wasn't anything going on worldwide that they thought would have influenced the the kind of children uh, that were coming to the website. So I uh, I did a literature search, and I found, well, first I, I speculated to myself. I asked, what could it be that we're all consuming? everywhere in the world that could be having a detrimental effect on the human brain. And the only thing that I could think of that we all consume in common is air. Mm. We all drink water, but it doesn't come from the same source. It comes from many different sources, so that the people in Flint, Michigan, drink water out of a river that has a lot of lead in it. But the people in mm -hmm. Eugene, Oregon, where I live, drink water from the mountains, uh, and it's very pure, and there is no lead in it. But we all breathe the same air. This air gets wafted around the world by wind. And so I did a literature search, uh, searching for articles and research, studying the relationship between air pollution and intelligence scores. And I found a lot of studies that demonstrated that people living in polluted air communities, uh, if you measure their IQ uh, at one time and then a year later, and a lot of these studies were done with children in schools, They're, if they lived in a community such as Mexico City that has very dense air pollution, their IQ scores would drop about a point or more, sometimes as many as four points over a year, compared to kids out in the suburbs of Mexico City, for example. So uh, I've written this study up, and I'm now seeking uh, to, to find a publisher for it in a professional journal because uh, it's very wow. serious stuff. Uh, 
There's a lot of data from the World Health Organization also that's consonant with this. They report that uh, something like 92% of humans live in communities with uh, unhealthy air. And, wow, uh, and that issue in and of itself is overwhelming to think of how there could be solutions for it or how to stop those staining statistics. It's very scary because the main cause of this air pollution uh, from from the literature search seems to be uh, the exhaust from burning fossil fuels, especially diesel, mm-hmm. is, uh, is toxic. And uh, the rate of drop is 81 hundredths of an IQ point per year worldwide. In the United States, yeah. uh, Canada, Great Britain, Australia, and India, it's 74 hundredths of a point per year on average. But worldwide, it's 81 hundredths uh, of an IQ point per year, which means that in as few as 37 years, the average world IQ could drop from 100, which is the average now, to 70, which is the upper end of the mental retardation range, at which point virtually half the world population would be unemployable. Wow. And probably also being able to be manipulated as well because of the lack of discernment that they may execute. Well, yeah, and if you just, you know, we all know some mentally retarded kids. We grew up in schools, and there was, in every school, there are some kids that are mentally retarded, and, you know, they're vulnerable to being used and abused by by others. Uh, But another Mm -hmm. uh, serious implication is that in 37 years, the the highest functioning people will only have an IQ of 100, and that's not high enough to graduate from a robust current four-year college degree program. So, in effect, there would be no college graduates in 37 years, which means that we wouldn't have people smart enough to lead governments or businesses or schools or what have you. Wow, that must be stark for you, I mean, as far as what your research shows. both It's terrifying, frankly. Yeah, yeah. What kinds of solutions do you think can be made in lieu of where we are, or is it irreversible at this point? Well, there are some scientists that tell us that uh, we've kind of reached a tripping point and that we may not be mm-hmm. able to correct things, even if we clean up, uh, you know, stop burning and putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere because we've put so much of in, into it already that it may have started a process that will keep going on its own, even if we stop burning fossil fuels. But to think in uh, slightly more positive terms, um, I make several suggestions in my research paper for what to do, and uh, they include uh, stopping burning fossil fuels and using solar power to create hydrogen to use as a combustion product instead, because when you combust hydrogen in in internal combustion engines, the only uh, exhaust is water vapor, which is not toxic. It's kind of of ironic with the new administration coming in that um, one person who I will not name says that environmental pollution is a hoax and that the global warming is a hoax and it's, it's, 
so fascinating to see where scientists have found that that's not true, yet we're also up against someone who is saying it is, and especially with how influenced many folks were um, in regards to the political, um, the, the voting, et cetera. So I wonder what you had to say in regards to that. Well, I have a lot to say about that, and that brings us back then to the topic of political psychology. And uh, I've been doing studies uh, since 2003 in that field, and I've done many, many studies, and I've found it fascinating. And the analogy I use is it's like trying to put together a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. And uh, human attitudes are like pieces in that puzzle. And if you measure those attitudes carefully uh, and look at the statistics, the statistics will tell you which things go close together and which things are far apart. And you can start to create a mosaic of political, human political behavior and attitudes um, that uh, creates a very uh, interesting uh, mosaic, if you will, that explains how liberals and conservatives tick um, and uh, it, briefly what it sh- what my data shows and what well let me back up a minute a lot of research has been done around the world that shows that liberal and conservative worldviews uh, or persons with those worldviews differ uh, from each other on scores of psychological traits including things mm-hmm. as simple as objects you have in your bedroom. For example, liberals are more likely to have maps in their bedroom than conservatives, and conservatives are more likely to have ways of keeping their things in their bedroom well organized. Uh, Music preferences also tend to differentiate liberals from conservatives. Uh, Movies and books differentiate them and they are different on all major dimensions of political discourse. For example, on foreign policy, <clears throat> conservatism correlates with a, a militaristic uh, foreign policy, and liberalism correlates positively with a peaceful foreign policy. In terms of religious beliefs, religious fundamentalism correlates positively with conservatism, Kindly religious beliefs, which include the golden rule, correlates positively with liberalism. Uh, But what what I found in my studies, I I, I did, I measured all of these major dimensions, ten major dimensions of political discourse, including preferred types of government, um, foreign policy, uh, economics, religious beliefs. And I found the same results that other researchers have found, that the the traits that I thought would correlate with conservatism did, and the traits that I thought would correlate with liberalism did correlate positively with liberalism. But then I computed the number of persons uh, that endorsed each of the traits, and I couldn't understand the results because the percentage of people that endorsed the traits was very high in endorsing the traits that correlated with liberalism. For example, uh, 90% of the people 
uh, endorsed what I call common good democracy, government that serves citizens as members of the community overall rather than as members of competing special interest groups. And only Mm -hmm. about 20% endorsed what I call special interest group democracy, which is what we have in the United States, government that serves citizens as members of competing special interest groups and so forth. And on religious fundamentalism, for example, only about 6% of people endorse religious fundamentalism and 89% tend to endorse kindly religious beliefs. And uh, there weren't enough liberals in the study to explain this skewing of the results toward the liberal side of things. The majority of Mm -hmm. citizens endorse a peaceful foreign policy rather than a militaristic foreign policy. So I took the strong liberals and the strong conservatives in the sample, and I computed for each of those groups their average score on each dimension, And I found that those average scores were actually rather close together on every dimension and tended to be on the liberal side of the dimension. For example, strong conservatives as a group tend to endorse a peaceful foreign policy, but not as strongly as strong liberals do. Conversely, on religious fundamentalism, Conservatives tend to endorse religious fundamentalism more strongly than liberals, but both of them are on the, uh, their both groups are low on that trait. They both are more wow. likely to endorse kindly religious beliefs. So this is something that other well, researchers that- had not seen before. But that led me to think there's there's a lot of hope in that data Mm because it shows that strong liberals and strong conservatives are actually as groups together on all of these dimensions of political discourse. It's interesting because what comes up for me is the is the recent um, the recent fake news that's been happening and how many people are influenced and how many people are not able to discern whether or not the news is fake or real and how does one use that emotional gauge to decide that and wondered if if your research with what you just what you just explained if how the fake news comes into this as far as the decisions that people make and not being able to see what is true and what is not true because yeah. of what they're fed Well, there are several different uh, facets uh, of that that I can comment on. One is there are a couple of adages that kind of guide the news media in terms of the news. One is uh, everybody loves a good fight. So they tend to phrase things when they can in terms of conflict between groups. And they look for uh, examples of conflict rather than of cooperation. So many political stories will be phrased in terms of conflicts, which imply greater conflict between liberals and conservatives than is actually present. Another principle that they use is if it bleeds, it leads. So it's related Mm. to the first one, but if somebody's getting hurt one way or another, they'll tend to print a story about that because people are sort of innately fascinated with people getting hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if somebody's beating up on somebody else, they'll, they'll make a story out of that. And that, that'll sell copy. 
and if it sells copies, then they'll they'll print it. Another another thing that uh, that I think colors what the media does is that they don't know how close together these groups are on these traits. So there's a tendency to think that liberals and conservatives are worlds apart on many of these dimensions, when indeed they aren't. Mm -hmm. But they're talking about the the extreme left uh, versus the extreme right. And there are people on those extremes that won't ever see eye to eye. But the majority of people in those two camps, the liberal and conservative camps, are actually not very far apart. But their voice is seldom heard because the media doesn't understand. They don't have enough research data to know how close together those two groups are. So their voice is basically ignored, and the voice that's heard are the voices of extreme liberals versus extreme conservatives, mm -hmm. which does a disservice to the community because it doesn't breed cooperation. It breeds conflict and fear. And that brings me to the thought that it's within the communities in and of themselves to start creating opportunities for people to listen deeply to one another uh, with the opposing ideas, the opposing views, in order to actually have dialogue so that we can start hearing differences instead of being afraid of the differences yeah. and being able to come to some point of cooperation. Um, I think it's interesting that researchers have also found that Darwin's theory is not as exact as they thought it was and that we're not really competitive and it's more with collaboration rather than um, survival of the fittest, at least what I've read and wondered if you'd like to, to talk address that as well. With the, yeah. You mentioned cooperation and collaboration. Yeah. Well, Darwin did not specifically use that phrase, the uh, the uh, survival of the fittest. Somebody else came up with that phrase uh, or way of describing things. Uh, Darwin basically said that the traits that develop, uh, define a species, and as especially as a, a unique species, uh, are the traits that give that species a competitive advantage in a given environmental situation. And as environments change, uh, <clears throat> variation um, among uh, members of a species will dictate which ones uh, have more advantage, uh, not so much over their, their fellow humans, but uh, over uh, the circumstances that they're, they're living in. But uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, from my research, I concluded that we shouldn't be trying to change liberals to be conservatives or conservatives to be liberals, mm -hmm. but rather we should do sophisticated polls to measure what people want in terms of government services and respect majority opinion and not in regards anybody to, to whatever, all kinds, all the dimensions of political discourse. Um, for example, Ask the people if they want a universal health care program versus a private industry health care program. If 90% want a universal health care program, then ask them which of four different models for such a program they prefer and uh, go with what majority opinion tells you. 
So with the climate as it is being so lit up emotionally, how one, two things, how can how can one begin to to take the pulse of what Americans, since we'll, I'd like to focus on the United States since that's where we are now, to be able to come to the point of what you're suggesting, especially with all the fear and their frontal lobes are probably not working really well and they're more in their old brain. How, how do you think, one, that we're in a place politically where we're kind of at that pivotal point that we're either going to go over the proverbial edge and who knows what will happen to us as a species or that we're also at a pivotal point where something can happen that will raise the consciousness of many who um, who know that a change has to be made. I hope that was a clear question for you. Yeah, it's clear. When I asked. Yeah, it's a clear enough one, and it's a good one. Um, well, I think what we need and what I'm hoping for, and I'll tell you in a minute how I think uh, we could maybe get there, what we need is to, um, and I've already done this, the polling that we need to do, but we need to do polls where we measure attitudes about different facets of uh, political issues, such as health care, uh, foreign policy, immigration, uh, jobs, um, housing, uh, education, and um, and you have to generally you have to ask several questions on each of those dimensions to go to good reliable measure. But if you get big uh, samples of citizens and you measure their what they want on these various dimensions, we could see what you'll see is that that uh, the majority of people want a very constructive agenda, political agenda. Mm-hmm. And I I know this because I've done the polls and I've I've measured these things. And I've replicated my studies on large random samples of Oregonians and of members of the the whole United States. There are what are called the general social survey studies done every four years, and they have been for many decades. That data is in repositories at the University of Chicago, and any researcher can go in and study variables in that data uh, to to measure public attitudes of all sorts. They, They measure scores of traits in each of these studies and they're large random samples of about 1600 people each time so that's highly respected uh, a highly respected data file that can be used <clears throat> and uh, what i have found in my studies and what i uh, saw replicated in a, a, a sample of about 1200 oregonians that was done uh, by some other researchers and they they let me use their data file and I went to three different years of the University of Chicago data and replicated. And I found the same tendencies uh, and trends. And so I can, with confidence, generalize about what we're likely to see if we do this research. But if we did research where we asked the public what they want, we would find, A, that the liberals and conservatives are kind of on the same page on every dimension, and B, that they all basically want the same thing, and it's a very constructive agenda. For example, one of the studies I did was with Occupy members several years ago. And uh, I went to a committee meeting uh, in our town of people that were trying to uh, come up with an agenda for the movement in our town. And there were 24 Mm -hmm. people in the room, including people from Oregon Research Institute and the University of Oregon, 
some pretty highly educated, sophisticated people. And we decided to go around the room and let each person in the room say what they thought was the most important agenda item for the movement. And as you may recall, the, the Occupy movement was a movement inspired by the financial meltdown in 2008 when the big banks were right. on the verge of collapse and the government had to bail them out or there would have been a major worldwide economic uh, uh, crisis. And uh, so I, I, wrote, I wrote down, as people went, as we run around the room, I wrote down what everybody thought was the most important issue. And they included items like we need to uh, teach our children well, we need to maintain uh, kind of a, a rational and cool attitude about all of these problems and not fly off uh, into a rage. We need to uh, hold the big banks responsible. We need to hold Wall Street responsible for the financial uh, crisis that they created by the way they handle things uh, and so forth. And <clears throat> so then I, I built a questionnaire to measure how strongly people endorsed each of these 24 dimensions and administered that to a group of Occupy members. And I got a friend to help me, and we sat on five-gallon buckets downtown in the camp. There was a, a tent camp downtown in Eugene of Occupy members. And we went down to that camp, and I had uh, big Hershey chocolate bars, and I would give people a chocolate bar if they would complete the questionnaire. And so we got lots of people to fill out the questionnaire. In fact, one young man uh, filled it out, and he brought it back, and then he came back a few minutes later, and he said, you know, could I get a second chocolate bar by filling out the questionnaire again? <laughs> and, of course, I, I couldn't let him do that because I, I, did, I didn't need two questionnaires from the same person. But um, then I got data from a whole lot of other homeless people that weren't Occupy members, and I got data from a lot of other from church members and others that weren't Occupy members. So I had a very large sample and a very diverse sample. And it was interesting to see that each group, the strong liberals, the strong conservatives, the Occupy members, the non-Occupy members, all of those groups endorsed all 24 items. They all wanted government that would improve all those different dimensions. Affordable housing, wow. affordable higher education, uh, a peaceful foreign policy, um, a stable monetary system, uh, a health care system. We're all on the same page. Wow. So this this supported my increasing confidence that we could create a new political party based on polls to create the party agenda mm -hmm. and that that party would appeal to the majority of both liberals and conservatives. Wow. And so I, wow. in the second, I, and I've written up all this stuff in a book. And the second mm -hmm. half of the book tells you uh, in detail how to create that new political party. And uh, the party, just briefly, the party would create its agenda by doing polls, and they would revise these polls every couple of years, repeat them so that they're always up to date. They would do polls of the general public and then polls of party members to create their agenda. They would publicly publish those results and their agenda. And they would groom candidates for elective office, both first at the city level and then the county level and then at the state level and eventually at the federal level. They would groom candidates for public office and get them to agree by written contract to represent the party agenda rather than their own agenda if they're elected office to office. 
and fund their campaigns only with party member dues. Now, you'd need chapters in every community that would meet every month all the time, not just once every four years before an election, but every month. And they'd have interesting meetings, much like Rotary International does and Kiwanis and many mm-hmm. of these other service clubs. They meet regularly and they have a good time and they get good things done in their communities. And I'm in a big Rotary Club. We have about 220 members in our Rotary Club. We have liberals and conservatives in our club, and we work very constructively together to get lots of good things done in the world, not only in our communities but worldwide. The Polio Plus program, for example, is a Rotary program. They started that, and Mm -hmm. they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars uh, out of their own pockets to fund that program, and they have eliminated polio in the Western Hemisphere. And they've got it almost licked uh, worldwide, and they're still working on it. And Bill Gates now helps support and fund that program. But liberals and conservatives can work very constructively together if you if you know how to organize them. So in the book, I tell you how to create that new political party. And uh, I've sent a copy of that book to Bernie Sanders and told him that I'd like him to help me get that party started. Wow, that and that's so. It's. I haven't heard that, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> well, you know, and I think about I think about with the earlier discussion, the question earlier. I, I look at how, in many ways, the incoming president, by popular vote and also by the electoral college. He he didn't. There's lots of speculation around him not winning, and the majority of people who were for another candidate. And so, looking at all the money that's tied up in politics now, how many people one may feel powerless, but then also I see the underground movement of the number of marches that are going to be happening a day after the inauguration. And I know in the community I live in, as small as it is, people are coming together in community and raising up and saying no more and wondered, you know, without losing stamina, without losing confidence, without being squished, you know, with the military complex and all that is probable, how you see, which I love your idea, how you see that come to the forefront. Is it within communities that this is growing individually as communities, or how is it that you that you see it in lieu of where we are right now? With well, I some think, people feeling very discouraged, you know, Yeah, I think the community, I think uh, citizens are very ripe for this new party. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be a blessing in disguise that uh, Trump won because uh, I think things are likely to go so badly that uh, people are going to really want something better. And I'm hoping that they'll read my book and uh, agree that this is it's, a, it's an empirically based uh, model, uh, which I think is one of its strengths. It reminds me of, of the uh, the efforts of humans to fly. And they've mm-hmm. been wanting to fly for centuries. But it wasn't until the Wright brothers did some very sophisticated research that they they learned the principles of aer- aerodynamics that they had to know in order to fly successfully. And I, I look at my research uh, sort of as the same same sort of thing in politics. It's very sophisticated research. It's very comprehensive. And it 
kind of tells you how to fly politically. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping and people part of- will read the book and see that and start forming chapters uh, at sort of a grassroots level thing. And one of the first things that I'll, I'll do if Bernie's game is I'll suggest that we build a political party or uh, we build a, a website that has questionnaires on it. And I've got all these questionnaires on my website. So it's an easy thing for me to do is we can use questionnaires I've already developed or I can, I can write new ones very quickly. But put the questionnaires on the website so local communities could go to the website. They could have citizens in their community take the questionnaire so that they could then download uh, their data for their community. I could send them the, the, the data for their community. They would know what the agenda the, their citizens in their community wanted for city government, county government, state government, and federal government. And they could start creating their chapter and, and then network with other chapters and eventually build a, a state organization and then regional organizations and then an, eventually a national organization. Have you found that you've been able to to get other communities across the United States in starting to be engaged in this? And are you uh, starting to... No, no, it's not easy to do. Uh, the book no. is on Amazon, and it's inexpensive, uh, but it doesn't sell itself. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm still employed full-time working for the Social Security Administration, so I don't have time to go wandering around the country giving public speeches and and uh, trying to drum up interest in this. Uh, I'm hoping that university students will pick up on it and uh, that they'll like it enough that it'll kind of spread... Uh, um, from one person to another, uh, rather than me having to go out and, and uh, convince people that it's a good idea. I've tried to write the book so that a, a lay, a layman can understand it. I've got some statistics in it, but I downplay the statistics and I try to explain everything in terms that that uh, a basic reader can understand. And I've had a lot of people read the book uh, that do understand it and think that it's very good. Uh, and yeah. Uh, there are several endorsements. Uh, there are endorsements on the website at uh, Amazon. You can go and and look at those, see what people think of it, and uh, and there are uh, four endorsements in the book itself now. In the latest uh, edition, I put four endorsements in, in the beginning of the book. And I'm, I'm, 70, we, um, I'm 77 years old, and I, you know, I I. I uh, and I, I, my wife said, you know, to make this thing take off, you're going to have to have a charismatic leader, who's, uh, namely me, who's going to go out and do this public speaking. She said, you're a good public speaker when you don't give too many statistics. But uh, I, right. my counter to her was charismatic leaders have a bad habit of getting assassinated. And so I think <laughs> I'll pass on that idea. I'm going to send the message out there and let other people pick it up and hope that it won't require any charismatic leaders to make it fly. Because if you kill off the charismatic leader and that ends the program, you know, that's that's not good either. So I'm just hoping people will and I, eventually pick it up and, and read it and start to spread the word. And I know that for those of us that are change agents and going out into the world with whatever message it is of hope, of of knowing that there can be change, knowing that because it feels so dark right now, it's often darkest before the dawn, something wonderful can emerge from all this that with it also comes a settling down of people still being in shock. Uh, One woman in her nineties, I did a circle up here 
on Whidbey as, as an opportunity for people to come together and talk about their wide range of emotions from anger, rage, to grief, to disbelief. And this 90-year-old woman said that she felt like many folks had what syndrome she called the egg beater brain, where people's minds were so scrambled with what had happened that they, they don't know if they're coming or going right now. And mm-hmm. I think we see a lot of that with actions. And so my sense is that when people can settle down a little bit and be able to reground themselves to see with clear vision that we can make a movement forward in the direction that you're, that you're emphasizing. And I know on my behalf and also on the behalf of authentic messengers that, that we will do what we can to help get your word out. Um, and cause I know it's our youth, um, that will be the ones that pick up, pick up and make this world the world as they they seek it to be. So, I oh, applaud I you for that. for your research. As you've been talking, I'm curious how it is that you even got interested in doing research within politi- within the political psychology. How was it that you, what drove you to do that? Well. Let's see how much time I have here. I've got about five minutes, right? <laughs> yeah, five, seven minutes or so. Yeah. Okay. Feel well, comfortable um, to please answer to the best you Yeah, know. I'll try to give you the short answer. The short answer is <laughs> in 2003, I ran across an article in the American Psychologist. It was a theory by two Pennsylvania psychologists, Roy and Judy Idelson. Uh, they had a theory that uh, there were five human traits that underlie international conflict. Uh, feelings of injustice, uh, helplessness, uh, vulnerability, uh, superiority, and one other. And uh, they hadn't measured these traits, uh, so but I thought I could. By that time, uh, in other areas of my practice as a psychologist, I had developed considerable expertise in measuring human behavior with questionnaires. So I had a lot of confidence that I could measure those traits and then to validate them, I had to have a, a measure of warmongering endorsement uh, because they're mm-hmm. talking about Hitler's kind of war, what underlies right. Hitler's kind of war. So I developed, I wrote a questionnaire that measured warmongering proneness, and I, I gathered data from a bunch of community college students that completed the questionnaires and ran the correlations, and sure enough, there was a very strong correlations between uh, the Idelson worldviews and the warmongering endorsement scale. So that got me started, and then I just started. I just followed my curiosity from there, and and I've measured uh, literally scores of uh, traits since then, and studied the relationship between those traits and uh, between liberal and conservative worldviews, and that's how I how this stuff all started to unfold. And I was just fascinated by the results, so I kept doing more and more studies, and I was uh, urged by a psychologist at Oregon Research Institute to join the International Society of Political Psychology, and I joined that society. And I've given papers at their conventions here and in Europe many times since. And uh, a past president of that organization writes the uh, introduction to my book in Chicago in 2012 when I gave a paper. He buttonholed me after the paper, and he said, Bill, keep doing what you're doing. Your work is visionary. And uh, he read yeah. the book and wrote uh, wrote a review of it and uh, endorsed it, you know, and said, I think this thing could work. So that's that kind of encouragement kept me going. 
because there are not very many political psychologists in the world. Uh, I, I think I might be the only one in in Oregon, for example. So it's a lonely business, but uh, I've been supported by a number of people, and uh, that's how I got into it. And before we stop, I'd, I would like to have you mention the name of the book and how people can get it at Amazon. Yes, of course, and also your website. Um, yeah, my party my, time is, an, is the name, the name of the name book. of the book. Party time: How you can create common good democracy right now. And if you go to Amazon and just put in the name McConaughey, M-C-C-O-N-O-C-H-I-E, and Party Time, you'll get right to that site at Amazon, and then you can buy it. The Kindle version, I think, is $9.95 or something, and the paper version is like $14. And my website wow, is so Political Psychology. My website is politicalpsychologyresearch.com. It's all one word, politicalpsychologyresearch.com. And you can go in there and you can take questionnaires. You can measure uh, Trump's warmongering proneness with study number six in that research batch. And I'd love a bunch of people to do that because my wife and I measured him and he's got scores that are way up there, up near G.W. Bush. <laughs> Bush is between Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan. Wow. On warmongering well, you know, you, endorsement. Are you familiar with the 13 grandmothers? No. The 13 I only indigenous have two grandmothers. grandmothers. I know them, but I don't know anybody else's. <laughs> These are 13 indigenous grandmothers from around the world. And Grandma Aggie actually lives down in Grant's Pass. She's a salmon grandmother. She comes up and blesses the waters. Anyway, they, they said that we are being run by what's called a moi, which is a boy in an old man's body, the same with Russia, the same with the Philippines. And mm-hmm. so, you know, part of what your research, I mean, we look at the adolescence of our own country and the growing pains right now. And I work in the area of, of suicide prevention up here on Woodby Island to the University of Washington. And suicide is at epidemic proportions with children, with teenagers, with adults. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it is imperative that we, that we do the work we can to help move forward so that people don't have to live in fear. Yeah. Did you so, know that it's an epidemic among physicians in the United States, too? I heard that through a woman who's in Oregon who does research on it and does retreats. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And, and she lives, I think, right here in Eugene. And, yes. Uh, I heard her on NPR talking. Excuse yeah. Me. Her, her, uh, she spoke at our Rotary Club, and uh, Pamela Wibble is her name, and she said that uh, – the, on average, one physician a day in the United States commits suicide. Yeah. Yeah, dies by suicide. It's, I, I work with highly sensitive people, and I've been a mental health clinician and uh, in community mental health, and my sense is three-quarters of the folks that I deal with who are depressed, anxious, um, PDS, PTS issues, et cetera, are, are mm-hmm. highly sensitive. And those are the ones often that are driven to suicide. And yeah. on that note, rather than leaving it <laughs> on a heavy note, you mentioned that, um, that I believe you said that there was some ray of sunshine in all your research, or um, maybe I'm asking if you do have, leave the listeners with some hope or some thoughts on your end in regards to where where we're moving and progressively moving forward. 
Well, for me, the, the biggest hope is what, what my research shows and which, which I outline in the book. It shows that there's mm-hmm. a model for creating a political party that can empower the majority of citizens, and the majority of citizens want a very constructive political agenda. In effect, it's a blueprint yeah. for how to fly politically. Mm. Wow. Well, that thank make you. It easy. Thank- that doesn't make it easy to no. build an airplane, but if you have the basic principles, you can build with confidence and eventually build one that will fly. And I believe that we're all here for a reason and that we have been well-trained <laughs> to be able to deal with the times that we're faced with. And part of it is really looking at where we may be victim and where we are not being accountable and responsible for our own actions and to start standing up with that from the inside out with our empowerment. Sounds good. So. Thank you so much. And for listeners out there, thank you so much for listening in. And I do hope that you do go to Amazon to check out Dr. Um, McConaughey's book on party time. Um, He has it for a discounted price of $10. And to also look at his website. Again, your website is um, politicalpsychologyresearch.com. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Well, thank you and so as much. A special, for as a special for your listeners, if they want to send me an email message and ask for the book, I can send it to them for $10, including postage. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the work you're doing and um, for making the world a better place, one person at a time. And you're welcome, for listeners, Catherine. <laughs> Thank you. For listeners out there, please take good care of you during these times that may seem very turbulent. Know that there are many who love you, who stand beside you, and that we're not in this alone. And be kind to each other. Be kind to yourself. And um, take good care. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care.